But this this is a week where also mean reversion takes on multiple meanings. Because what you're talking about is reverting to the mean. Wait, what, wait, I saw, wait, wait. what I saw was being mean while reverting. <laughs> Words have multiple meanings. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Good, sir. What's up? This is a great week, man. This is a week where uh, mean reversion was just dancing on people's souls, and I loved it because that's how, that's how the world works, man. Look at bond yields. They're mean reverting. Look at the S&P 500. It's mean reverting. Everything's everything's coming back to where it rightfully belongs. But this this is a week where also mean reversion takes on multiple meanings. Because what you're talking about is reverting to the mean. Wait, what, wait, I saw, wait, wait. what I saw was being mean while reverting. <laughs> Words have multiple meanings. Apparently. And for you, I mean, I'm sorry the market was mean to you. I just mean overall. We can we we'll talk about that a little bit later. For now, rate and review. Love that. Hit us up for that listener mail, skippydoogles at gmail.com. We love getting that from you. Uh, and at Skippy Doogles is our Twitter. So Yeah, listen, we're about to reach a major down, download milestone. Could happen this week if you guys uh share the podcast with a friend. Uh we'd appreciate your help with that. So uh Shoot it to, you know, send somebody a text and say, I want you to listen to these guys shenanigans this week. And uh, we'll reach that major milestone download, that download milestone quickly. Um, Dougals, how do you get a job? I'm asking for a friend here. How do I get a job? Yeah. I show up every day and I'm awesome. <laughs> I, I've i always just like done lots of push-ups on, on the middle of the street <laughs> and then someone stops and ask what you're doing and then strike up a conversation that- it makes me i'm sorry but it makes me think about you know those memes that have gone around it's like how i made a million dollars at 21 <laughs> you know that, yeah. that's that's like what that made me think about how did i get my executive level job at the age of 20 <laughs> i wake up every day i drink enough water i do push-ups i work out i listen to lots of podcasts i read a lot of articles I read 755 books a year. Yep. And my parent was an executive and they appointed me into that position. Like, yeah, that's like, and, that's how all those memes work. And then the other one is like the exact same stuff, except they, they do a skipping Diggles pod reference. And then they go, and my dad gave me $5 million. And that's how I became a millionaire at 22. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. You're going to spit. some. We're, we're joking around here, but people often say you get a job by networking in my experience that's true as depressing as that is linkedin did some a b uh research um where they treated different groups of users differently with how they recommended um basically growing their network right so they did this over four years uh with 20 million users those 20 million users created 2 billion new social connections and completed more than 70 million job applications that led to 600,000 new jobs. So that's kind of the background. You have 20 million people here, lots of new connections. And what LinkedIn did is they recommended people grow their network in different ways. Any questions on that? Makes sense. Okay. 
So they just wrote the research paper this week. They did this in collaboration with MIT and uh, one other university, which is escaping me at the moment. And the findings are that moderately weak ties are the best option for helping people find new jobs and do so much more than stronger ties. What they did here is they encouraged people to expand their network through weak ties. And the way they measured that is basically how many connections you have in pro in common with someone else. So if me and my best friend have worked at the same company for years, we probably have like a hundred connections in common, right? Um, it's the people that I have less than 10 or around 10 connections in common that often are the catalyst for me getting a job in a new place. The re the thing I want to bounce off you is I think this all makes sense. It, it's not incredibly groundbreaking for me, but my conclusion as to why is slightly different than the way the article seems to conclude that this matters. Yeah. And to give a little bit of background here, pre LinkedIn is the weak ties, whatever you want to call it, maybe like philosophy theory was something that was written up. I think it might have happened before then too, but back in the 70s, someone named Mark Granovetter, I believe was his name, wrote a paper. He was at Harvard, wrote a paper around the power of weak ties versus strong ties, which is something that is like cemented its way into social science and social psychology over the last few decades. So this was the most rigorous, I think, and at scale amount of data that's been had since Mark wrote that paper. I'm just going to call him Mark wrote that paper yeah. a few decades ago. Thank you, because I, I think that's great context. So my takeaway here where I say it's slightly different is I just think that people get rewarded for networking and tapping their network and that the job opportunity isn't always going to come from your best friend or your collection of closest work colleagues. It's the opportunity presents itself probably outside of your core network. That's where the job is, is my hypothesis. So the more of those weak social connections you have, the more opportunities for jobs that fit your skill set exist. And I think that's why it comes from the weaker ties. I, I think your closest colleagues or best friends are probably wholeheartedly going to recommend you for a job. I think they just have a limited purview as to what's available to you. I agree. And it does stem back to the overall reason why weak ties are said to be powerful is just because you you don't know a lot by yourself, like to expand out of that. You have limited information. You as Skippy have limited information by yourself. Then when you go out to even your close friends, you have more information, but it's still within like a certain sphere of information, right? Then when you start going out to people that you like rarely ever talk to, they're reading different books, they're listening to different podcasts, they have different jobs or at companies never thought about. And so you just, to your point, you end up getting exposed to a lot more stuff. That's where the the whole weak ties point comes from. So it is, it's different than like a weak tie is more important. It's more about exposure to more things is more helpful. And to get that exposure, you have to go beyond your core network. Yeah, that I guess that's the way I'd write the headline here is just like casting a wider net with people you still are uh, friendly with, acquainted with, like whether it's still a tie is the key to getting a job. It's not necessarily leveraging your weak ties. It's the casting the wider net part. I love too. we've talked about this in other contexts recently with regard to investing in finance and whatnot as well. I think there's such a uh, a strong correlation there when we discussed like pattern matching and looking at contexts that are outside of your core context in general, it allows you to just think differently 
and to analyze your own information differently. Um, I think it's it's very similar. Now, this has more to do just with jobs, but um, I think that this this study in in the the piece that you're talking about, the New York Times piece, it got a pretty bad rap, uh, and mostly that came from for like ethics perspectives. Like they were yeah. saying, if there's a way for people to be more economically mobile and to help them to get jobs, why are you not giving them the information that would be more helpful for them to get jobs? Now you've like stunted their careers, right? Is is part of where the ethics question was coming from here. I get that academically. And I also kind of say like hogwash. What do you always what are you always telling me? Bellywomper? You always call me something. I can I can't remember what it is. I have no idea, but it's not bellywomp. <laughs> No, uh, I'm with you there. I don't think there was conclusive evidence of maybe until this study, but even with this study, I'm not sure that we like are never looking at uh, this problem from a scientific fashion. Again, I, I have no problem with them playing around with recommending different connections to you to try and maximize your chance to get a job. I think they feel like they have conclusions that can help people going forward, but I don't think they did anything sideways here. It didn't seem like it. And I don't know if you don't run the test, how do you learn? That's now, there's a certain yeah. There's a certain level of ethics, right? Like if you go to medicine or something like that, like that's where when you, when you do things that have to do with health, like tests that have to do with health, you cut it off before something is statistically significant from what I've seen, because like the moment you realize something could be much more helpful, you kind of go over there. This, these are people's economics. And so I understand that that's also like, it's pretty vital. And at the same time, they weren't, they were just trying to learn for the betterment of scale in the future. Like it wasn't a, I don't know, there wasn't anything coming at it from a negative angle from what I saw, at least. And this is no, it's not like they hid all the jobs that I was qualified for, for me exactly, and then gave them to someone else. That's not at all what happened. They, they didn't recommend my third connection to some folks and they recommended it to others. Like, Yeah. Big deal. I, anyway, I found it interesting. Not necessarily a direct tie to investing, but I, the thing I would probably wrap with on this one is, listen, if you're in your early 20s or even your mid-20s and you have rebelled against playing this game like I did in my early 20s, I'd tell you to get over that as quickly as possible. You need to leverage your network uh, to grow in your career. And the, the less you fight it, the better. Um, I just say from personal experience, I fully understand how the game works now. And I didn't like that when I was younger. I thought it should all be based on merit, but that's unfortunately not how the world works. Yeah, and I, I do go beyond it. Just the, the job piece. And I, I say, also do read things that, are, that you think are weird or outside of your normal zone. Because like, to me, it's very similar. When I say read things, I mean um, books, listen to podcasts, listen to articles, pick up periodicals that you might shun on a daily basis and be like, I don't know who reads that. And just like read it every now and again, a few times you get different perspectives. You might come up with different names, even going back to networking. You can learn about different people you might you might not have learned about otherwise and be able to like reach out. Like there's a lot that comes from weak ties, whether that's a, a relationship weak tie or information weak tie. So I push that. I second what you just said. Yeah. And actually, um, I'd say what you said in a slightly different way, like just use your intellectual curiosity for what a lot of people call networking. Find people that you think are interesting that are that you have a weak tie with. Read their book, read their stuff, 
talk to them that let curiosity be the guide rather than feeling like it's um just climbing the ladder there's lots of ways to go about this anyway moving on i am going to reach into the fishbowl and talk about someone's experience working at stripe brie wolfson wrote a post called what i miss about working at stripe Bree Wilson or Wolfson, it looks like she was there for about four years from 2015 to 2019 seems about the amount of time that they worked over at Stripe. And this post I found to be quite interesting. The details that are in the post, um, I think, could turn some folks off. I also read the comments that came along with the post, and it seems like some folks was just not happy with it. And then... At high level, um, I'll go back. I'll go back. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and and then on the other side of it, there are some like macro takeaways that I just think are, are really interesting. So I want to hit on both of those. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, no. my question to get us going is just like, what about this headline was interesting to you? Like, wh- what, where was the gravitational pull with this piece? Like, why did I read it in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. A company like Stripe. So Stripe is a payments processing company. It is privately held still, so has not gone public. Very highly valued. It might not be the most highly valued non-public company now because I think like ByteDance and there might be a couple others that are taken over, but its last valuation was something like $95 billion. So very highly valued company. In order to go from where they went in, I think they were started in some like around 2010, somewhere around there to now, so over a 12-year period of time to get there, there's a lot of high growth that has to happen, which means like hitting the ground real hard. And I get interested in people when they dig into the what what it was like to be there and the culture that existed there. So that's like what initially uh, pulled me in. Now, I think where the controversy came from here, some of the things, and I'll, I'll quote a couple of them, that Brie talks about here were how much they worked. And it's like an ode to working that hard here. So an example, she talked about there was a vacation that she had planned and they were about to launch something because they're probably always about to launch something. Yep. And the boss came over and said, would you reconsider going on this vacation? Because who else is going to do your work while you're gone? Canceled her vacation. And she was like, that was awesome. Like I look back on that and that was the right choice. That's like an example. And she talks about 15-hour workdays, people nearly always eating dinner at the office together, dot, 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 right? So you can see it's like examples of things like that that are the where the the heartache came in the comments of how are you celebrating this? How could anyone that has a family ever want to be in a place like this? Or how could it be possible they can be a place like this? Like how is mental health impacted? There's like lots of that kind of stuff that came out in Mm -hmm. the comments. My high-level takeaway, because I think all that's right, right? I've also been at places, I'd say specifically, I've been working on projects where when you feel like you are being a part of something bigger than yourself, there's almost nothing higher in the world than that feeling broadly. And I don't mean just at work, right? Because even going back to the family piece, right? It's those moments, I think, when you're like deep in it with the fam, No matter what that is, it could be something like on a positive note, it could be like you're getting through it together. Like you just feel like there's like, I am not as important as this bigger thing. And that's just a like, that's such a powerful feeling. And work is a place that people can get that when they might not be able to get it somewhere else. 
So one quote here, it's more about missing that universal agreement that it's really, really cool to devote yourself fully to your work and to expect that from your colleagues in a way that makes you feel that we're all really, really, really in this together. Now, I think that the statement around it's really, really cool to devote yourself fully to your work. I don't know. I get where she's coming from. Right. Mm -hmm. But I just kind of I just pull that out and say, like, it's really, really cool to devote yourself fully to something. And being able to I get where uh, when she's talking about working at Stripe, that's where she found that. I just think it's really awesome that like uh, to understand that feeling and to like seek out that feeling, because I think it's a big deal. So I'll pause, get your reaction. Yeah, I don't have an issue with this. I mean, my um, I I like the perspective and I like that as she looks back, uh, she thinks of that so positively because I think we've all been caught up exactly to your point. We've all been caught up in experiences, whether they're related to work or not, that feel bigger than you and that you get excited about and you, you know, you want to climb that mountain rather than sleep, right? It's such an amazing part of life. So my general take on work-life balance as it relates to work is something that's evolving and I'm always learning more about, you know? I know that if someone was forced to work 15 hours, uh, let's put it this way. I know that it, there are people probably at the same company at the same time as her that didn't end up with the same positive impression because they had other things going in, on in their life or they didn't feel like they were climbing a mountain that was the most important thing for them at that time in life. But I understand that too. I think when you get the chance to be part of something that feels bigger than yourself, um, that's amazing. And that's not something that everyone gets, so it should be cherished. Yeah. And it's not something everyone wants or should want. So I want to state mm -hmm. that. And for those of you that haven't worked at startups or high growth startup companies, this might feel very foreign to you. I've, as we've talked about here in the pod, I've worked at now six of these and various levels of high growth, but at certain periods of time, right? Really, I'll just call it complex relationships with work because you, you have to go deep. Like for these companies to build out what they've built out, it can be brutal at times. And um, the when I say brutal, I'm talking about there are periods where I've left work at 2, 3 a.m. and gotten back to work at 7 like that is a ridiculous, like four periods of stretches of time yep. when, when you're in it together, like when there's a group of people that, you know, what the goal is and you're pushing for that goal, it can feel quite rewarding and you can burn folks out easily because if you, to your point of what you mentioned of other people, not feeling the way that, that she felt here, if you don't feel how she felt about this and you were still working those hours and you still gave up that vacation, you're burnt out. You are pissed and Torture. rightfully so. Yeah. And rightfully it's not so. a good job. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it's for not that job. person at that point in time. It's a terrible job. So I think that's one of the headlines here is just understand that people are different and at different stages in life and uh, try and be accommodated when possible. But in a high growth startup, sometimes you can't be incredibly accommodated either. It kind of is what it is. Yep. I'm going to throw out one last thing. And this is this is the. A uh, more potentially controversial part of this because it can go in a few different directions. I'm about to make a meta point outside of what Brie was trying to make. And you can decide whether or not you want to go there. We've discussed how there are different factions of folks who just have a really hard time agreeing on things right now. 
the country feels very separated and that can lead to no bueno-ness. One of, I mean, this is a long quote here, but I'm going to read it and you can see if you tie to it. See, she's talking about work. She's talking about work here. We'll only ever get out of what we put in, but we'll only ever get out what we put in. And in the case of work life, it is kind of a collective decision. Once your neighbor starts signing off Slack at 3.30 consistently, it's hard not to do the same. If your closest collaborators don't turn stuff around quickly, why would you? If there's no one in the room agitating for doing that extra copy pass to punch up that blog post, why not just ship the meh version and use the extra time for a jog or a drink with friends? The path of least resistance is right in front of us, and we are taking it. This is where, so I, I read the rest of this and I was like, yeah, man, I, I remember that time I was hitting it like that, getting up, going to blah, blah. And I was like, cool. You know, then I read this and went, this is the meta point that actually struck me after reading the piece. So it's different than why I read the piece. This is the meta point for me where it instantly took me back to like where we are right now, I think as a society. And it's true. The group think that's starting to like partially take place in what she's mentioning here. And when we're okay with not being okay or, or okay with not being great, even where does that take you? Mic drop. All right. You, you've, uh, there's a lot there. I like the quote. I think the quote is good, but this is where I'm saying my opinion on work-life balance is, is constantly evolving. It's something that in the past 12 months specifically, I realized uh, my previous conceptions about this have in some cases been wrong like i don't know i agree that what you put in is often what you get out and that can be really rewarding and at the right time in life working 15 hours a day at slack could be the best possible uh situation and solution for all parties involved i also don't know that i begrudge someone who tries to log off of slack at 3 30 and go for a jog because that's what they're prioritizing in life right now. Like that's where you got to help me out. Dougals It's like, I don't think either of these is it's not a one size fit all fits all approach. I agree. I actually, I think most of it is about managing expectations and aligning around what folks are going to be doing. Cause I, I don't, not only will I say I don't care that you're logging off at 3.30 necessarily, if we've agreed on like what, what's going to get done, do it, do it at the, you know, when it needs to get done in the way that it can get done for you. And I also remember you were talking about people at work needing to like go walk around the block, like do your thing, right? You yeah. got to, you got to be mentally healthy. So I fully get that. I think this is saying like, if, if you don't have that right, or maybe this is not what she's saying, my interpretation of this is if you don't have those aligned expectations, it's so easy to get into a world where you're just making assumptions about what others are doing and what that means for then what you should be doing. And that leads to crap, basically being shipped. She's talking about shipping in a startup environment, right? But just in general, because if you're making assumptions about what everyone else is doing and you're like, well, if they're just going to get their $10,000 in student loans written off, then I'm not going to work hard. You go, yep. okay, hold on. Yep. Like, that's not really what we're, you know, what we're saying here. Whereas if you do have those aligned expectations and you do assume like best of intentions, it's more likely that you can be like, I'm really happy they got their $10,000 written off. Now we can go do great things together. 
Yeah, right. it, it's funny. So the Wall Street Journal, I almost brought this up last week, but they did a breakdown of people trying to interpret job postings and and phrases like um, "wears multiple hats" and like I forget exactly, but basically like there is no job description. You'll take whatever shows up on your desk, like these sort of things. And then they had the potential person applying for those jobs try interpreting and being like this sounds like I work 15 hours a day and my boss is a jerk. Yeah. You know, like they did all these other things. So where I completely agree with you is if you can be consistent about setting those expectations, some people are looking for the next exciting startup to go conquer the world's biggest challenges and work 15 hours a day. And that's their number one priority. Make that crystal clear. Other people are trying to balance three kids and taking care of their grandma who's sick, whatever the case may be. Right. And they just simply, that's not the place they are at the moment. So I, I completely agree. If the high level takeaway is let's be more consistent about what we're actually trying to accomplish here and how we accomplish that, what the turnaround times should be. I think that's a win for everybody. I could go on and on, but I'll turn it over to you. What's next in your fishbowl? No, I want you to, I want you to at least wrap on this. I'm really interested in your thoughts. It's fun to talk through uh, just this high level. I don't even know where we are exactly, but there's growth to be had in the uh, in all companies on this front. What are expectations and how do we clearly define those? And what's going to work uh, for the largest majority of our employees? Like it's interesting. Yeah, and so I'm I'm only at a certain place in my career, wherever you want to call it, midway through, whatever you want to call it. But and as you mentioned, there's evolution that comes in a variety of different perspective and views as you go through life. One of the things this also makes me think about is with experience, what comes with the number and types of mistakes that you end up having to make. There are always going to be mistakes that you make. Why I bring that up is because the, so Collison brothers never worked with them. Seems like I know that they're really smart just by the, what I read, right. And the questions I see they ask in interviews, um, everything else about their operations. I'm not quite sure about. But what I also know is they were really young when they started this company. Mm -hmm. And so if you take, let's say the typical work year is around 2000 hours, I think is like the average of typical work year. And so folks here might be, yeah, gangsta. So if you, let's say that here, we're really talking about double or more of that, right? So you're talking about 4,000 hours is like what people are working here. It might very well be that like, if you say, if they did this all over again, they might have been able to achieve what they achieved with 2000 hours, but they did not know how to do it. And I think that there ends up being a difference. You just make different mistakes. I get that. But I've seen enough where you can spend 100 hours doing something that might have taken three hours. Or we were talking about it from like mm -hmm. a contractor consulting standpoint. We we're like, this is going to take me 15 minutes. They need me to work 40 hours. So let me spend 39 mm -hmm. hours and 45 minutes putting out the presentation about the 15 minutes, right? Or whatever it might be. Like, I, I think that that is also something that is interesting from like a startup perspective. And when you, when you look at the, at least historically, I don't know what the data looks like now, but when you look at the average age of people that create the most successful startups, like from a percent of uh, startups that succeed, it's like in the forties, but what yeah. ends up coming into the, the news all the time, or like the, the apples that were started by the college dropout you know, who's like 20 years old or Zuckerberg or whoever it might be. And I, I think somebody 
part of a reason why I believe that somebody that's in their 40s or so can have a higher hit rate is you probably have a capability to, again, this might be wrong, hypothesis, have a capability to burn people out less because you can prioritize better. You can make fewer of the mistakes that that these folks are making that might take more time, right? And you might not need this kind of burnout necessarily. Like you can probably do it differently. Uh, and so I'm one of the, the other place that I'm thinking about is I get that with Stripe and I wonder how you might be able to create that without the burnout for the people that do have families because you prioritize stuff differently as well there. So that's like the other angle that I start going down there. I have a whole like investment angle I could take this down to. But again, I'm yeah. tying too many things together. Well, no, listen, Mike, drop on that. I think you're exactly right. When you're in your 40s, your emotional intelligence has grown. Your network, we just talked about the LinkedIn study, has grown. You can say, I need to go to market strategy here. And I happen to know an expert in that. I, you call the guy up and you run with it. You're, yeah, I need money here. And you've raised money before. Like You should be able to work so much smarter in your 40s that you should have a better hit, right? And I think the data shows that. That's great. I, I actually, on that topic, I do want to shift gears slightly because you started our uh, pre-show meeting with a great question that was basically, I'm going to let you ask it again, but it was basically like, what should your average investor be doing now if we if we tie back directly to the markets? How, what did you say? I did not ask that at all. <laughs> what did you say? What I said, I was trying to be real specific. What is happening in the markets? And what should you do about it? You being Skippy or you being Dougals. The reason I was that specific is because I think the average investor piece, there's there's like there's so much that's in that. I do think that's an interesting topic, but I was literally asking, like during this time, for you, for me, for we, how it be. I'm going too far. But yeah. like how are we specifically? Well, okay. That me specifically, I'm not doing anything. I'm pretty excited about it. I I love this stuff. Uh, I hope, gosh, hope's the wrong word. I, I think we might end up down more than 37%. I know that's an oddly specific term and I'm not making a prediction, but I think I think things are going to continue to go down. But for your question as to like, why is this happening? That's what I think is so fascinating. So right now, if you're just sitting in your chair and aware of financial markets uh, this week, you see the S&P 500 going down. You probably see your stock picks going down. You see your 401k balance going down. Like on Wednesday, I saw 401k was trending on Twitter, which always cracks me up because it's just people complaining about the 401k balances. And in addition to that, you see interest rates across the board rising, right? So that makes it every purchase decision you make. I know you can get a 4% um, CD right now, six month term, like readily available. Every purchase decision you make, whether it's buying stocks or buying a new car or buying something else, you're always like, ah, I can, I can actually make a pretty decent return if I keep this cash in my bank account, right? So that continues the downward spiral, right? Who wants to go buy spot buy stocks when you expect them to go down twenty percent more when you can just park your money in? government insured FDIC protected funds and start to make a decent return. And the Fed has said that rates will continue to rise. Uh, there will probably be two more rate hikes before the end of the year. So I think the psychology of what's happening to the investor psyche 
it explains why the markets are acting like they're ac- acting. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. Here's where where my brain gets caught up, like Ursher. It's because, and we we touched on the unprecedented times, right? A whole bunch, like this, the everything bubble, all that stuff. It's because like the market, in my eyes, for an everything bubble, for a super bubble, as GMO called it, is like barely down. True. And which might get to your, you know, very possible it could go down further point. And then there are these pretty solid companies that are down so far right now. And I like where, where I'm sitting. And so when I say solid companies, I'm saying that for a reason, because I could talk about solid businesses. I could talk about solid stocks. I'm saying solid yeah. companies. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, what, cause where this market, if it's like a, the super crash, super bubble, super crash thing, like the market's going to be down over 50% in total. If it's that, I'm not saying it's going to, I'm just saying like, if, if you're really talking about like a super crash, like it's going to be down over, it might be over 70%, but it's down over 50%. Certainly. If we're just playing the mean reversion game, valuations got crazy high. If you I, look I, at Cape ratio, I think it's still 27. Like it's still historically high. It was in the forties. So if you just play the mean reversion or the valuation game, there's still a long way to run. If we just come back to average, I mean, a long way to run, long yeah. way to run. And then that's where the, the market versus like individual stock game, like starts to play. And that's what I'm most like, what's hitting my brain most. Cause there are, there are some stocks we'd be texting about them. Sometimes there's some stocks that are, I'm looking at, I'm like, it was a stock I was staring at for literally 10 minutes the other day, 10 minutes, not really staring at, but every now, but I check it yeah. and I was yeah. like, is this real? Like, is this a, is this a real like price with having in mind? Cause it's, it's not, it's not wild. that something we get to that price, but in the back of my mind where I'm like, if this is the start of something big, if this is the price before the market gets hit another 30, 40%, whatever it might be, what am I doing? Like that, that was what was, well, now, now what am I, I, I don't mean like what actions am I taking now? I mean, like, how am I thinking about this? Like, uh, what's my psychology that's sitting in this point? Uh, yeah. Let's, hey, can we do a hypothetical example? Cause we're saying the same things in a slightly different way. Yeah. We're deep in a rabbit hole. I'm going to step back and just reset for the, the average investor maybe, or Please the novice do. investor. Thank so first you. of all, I just mentioned Cape ratio. That's a cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. It's basically a 10 year average of. Uh, price to earnings uh, in the stock market. So you can look at a 10-year average of price to earnings and say, it's probably going to be near the average value there. Historically, we've been much higher than that, especially for the last decade. Well, for the last five years, say. Dougals and I both buy individual stocks. Your average investor should probably not buy individual stocks. So we're as we talk deep in the rabbit hole about evaluation of a specific company, please know that we do a lot of analysis and a lot of reading before we would buy an individual company. I think what we're going to talk about here is still uh, relevant and hopefully interesting to your individual investor. So Dougals, what I'm saying with with the stock you're talking about, that's at 140 bucks a share right now, that I think is worth double that. Um, I, I'm saying I can do the same thing as you. I can be staring at that price and I can be going, 
oh man, it's time to it's time to write the check to make that next purchase. I already own some of that stock, right? But I'm also going Jerome Powell, everyone else is freaking out. Uh, rates are going to continue to rise. So maybe the more logical thing is for me to park that money in a CD or something making 4% return. Know that soon I'm going to be making 5% return on that. And the stock market is going to continue to get beat up. That stock is likely going to be less than 140 bucks a share. And and so that's the game that's happening in, I'd call it a more sophisticated investor's head, but it's happening in everyone's head right now. Even the people that aren't sophisticated are like, my 401k balance is down and I actually make a little money on the cash if I have any cash right now. Not everyone has cash parked on the sidelines either. So that's why investor psychology, if you look at the fear and greed indexes this week, they're about as low as they have been in almost a decade. Like people are terrified and they're terrified exactly because of the tactical things I'm trying to explain here. Like it doesn't feel like there's a great place to do. And it certainly doesn't feel like purchasing equities is a path to near term fun, right? Yeah. And maybe near term fun is the, it's not what I'm looking for. No, it's not what I'm looking for either. I'm looking for long term fun. <laughs> yes, long <laughs> long term fun, absolutely. Yeah. But it is a to, to what you're saying, uh the the head games it can play with right now, I think are interesting. There's no for you and I, I believe, tell me if I'm speaking on a turn for you, but the word terrified doesn't come up for us. I, I at least I'm I'm not terrified. I don't think you're terrified at all. Happy comes up for me. Yeah. And the the thing where that gets me into my deep headspace is when I go, should I deploy right now? It's to your point. Like, should yeah. I deploy right now or deploy not? the capital? Yeah. Um, because this looks real tasty. I like when things look tasty. I like to take a nibble, but maybe it's worth waiting. And for the bulk, I know, I know I'm waiting like for, like for anything like real, I know I'm waiting not, and I'm not waiting to be clear. I'm not waiting because I quote unquote know it's going down or anything of that nature. I'm waiting because I one I can wait and there's there's not a rush, right, to get into anything necessarily right now. And I want to see where things do sit after the next couple uh, interest rate hikes, but sometimes when when that with this one particular stock, I told myself uh when it was 160s, I was like that's a pretty good price. So that's a pretty good price right there. If it gets yeah. to the 150s, I cannot even resist, is what I told myself. You got to the okay. 150s, and I was like, hold on. Now. <laughs> and, then, and then when it got into the 140s, it's like, I mean, it's like, what, what are you trying to do to me here? And so it's, it's hard, like it's difficult to resist, but that's where I'm, my brain is. Okay, so for your equity investors, this is also a fun uh hypothetical, but it's actually playing out in real time, right? Um, when, let's say I had 10,000 bucks sitting on the sidelines, when I'm making 0.25% interest, feels like that there's no reason to have it in the high yield savings account. So if I can go buy a stock, maybe with the 3% dividend that I think is um, significantly undervalued, that feels like a win, right? Yep. Well, now I mentioned I could park that, maybe get four or eventually 5% or even more. So I'm not interested in the stock that is a little undervalued that pays a 3% dividend. 
But that same stock, I have a specific example here too, currently pays a 7% dividend and I think is trading at like 35% of its true value. So th- those games have to happen. The The equity has to get more enticing for me. And when the equity pays a 10% dividend that I feel is safe and is still at 30% of what I think its true value is, I, I'm not going to be able to resist that deal anymore because it's just going to be better. So that's what I love to see play out because those things, you have to look at the opportunity cost of those two capital allocation events and they work in tandem. And that's why as interest rates rise, it's very likely that equity prices continue to come down to reach equilibrium where the opportunity cost makes sense there. This is an exciting time. Is it exciting? Uh, it is. Thanks for going down the rabbit hole on that one with me. I, I've been thinking about that psychology and uh, really have had some fun with that this week. And I'm sure we're going to continue. To oh, see some absolutely. Deals there. This is so not close to being over. Whatever whatever it is. I don't mean like the crash. Or, I just mean specifically this market of, uh, I'll just call it uncertainty and unprecedented times. We have a couple of years at least yeah. left in in this. So, well, and that's the thing I think about when you talk about your juicy deal at 140. It's like I I know I think it's a juicy deal too. The thing that gives me some uncertainty there is if I buy now in what I'd call a more normal market, my time horizon is probably going to be 2 to 3 years before it reaches truly value. But with the chaos that's happening right now and all the uncertainty, I feel like I buy now, it's still going to make, like, I know I'm still going to make money long-term. There's a high probability of that, but is it going to be five years? And and to um, sacrifice that time horizon, there is like a cost associated with that. And so that's where I, I, I hear you over there. I think we're on the same page, but that's how I think about it is like the time horizon feels less in my control than it would in a more, I'll call it a more normal market. Yeah. And that's where I, I think I talked about, maybe it was a couple of months ago, I was saying that there was one stock that I still owned that wasn't a long-term hold for me, ended up selling that. And so now everything that's in my portfolio is at least of, of currently in my view is a long-term hold. Those things can always shift, but currently in my view, everything's long-term hold. And so as I think about deploying this, it's a lot less about is the do I believe the intrinsic value is above where it is right now? It's like, is this a five year plus hold? Yeah, like, exactly. Right. And do I want to deploy for that? Right. Whereas the, you know, the company we were talking about a few weeks ago that I that I picked up like that is that is in my head, it's potentially lifetime, potentially. Right. Things can shift. Who knows mm-hmm. where the company's mm-hmm. going to go? But in my head right now, I'm like, that could be potentially lifetime hold. Cool. Done. This one isn't. I know it's not that. I don't know if it's a a five year quite yet, and so if it's this is this is the to me I don't know the word fun might not be right, but you know, used it I'll, I'll grab onto it. This is the beauty, maybe I'll say that in investing and the complication that comes along with it uh, is managing your own psychology, psychology, looking at the markets, playing the game on the field, as Bill Gurley says. It's really really interesting times. You know how I always rail on predictions. If, if we went to the industry experts and looked at their predictions for um, the S&P 500 at this time, do you think they nailed it, Diggles? Do you think they just crushed it? Well, they never have. So <laughs> why start now? 
All right. So what they said was going to happen at the end of September 2022, at the beginning of the year, uh, they were only off by 34%. They missed on the high side by 34%. This this happens all the time. And so uh, apologies for bringing it up. Go ahead. Sorry. But to be clear, I just want to be really clear. They missed by like absolute value 34 points. Like they they weren't 30% off. Meaning when I say that, the yeah, difference here point. is they didn't say that it would be at 100, right? And it was 30% less than that. Like it, it was, they said it was going to be at like up whatever 30% and it's like down like that's the it's so absolute value points which is very different am I right there yeah yeah it's a good call I'm not going to tell you the numbers in the S&P that they predicted because no one even cares we talk percent change here because it's stupid to say 4,514 but yeah they they missed by 34% they said we'd be 34% higher than we actually are so we're just going to lay, lay that fact out there. You can remember it the next time you see someone talking on CNBC about where the markets are going because it's not going to happen. Never happens. It's, it's hogwash, as you said earlier. Belly wonk. There's your, there's your weekly reminder. All right, wrapped? Yeah, that's it on my end. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. As I mentioned, help us reach that big download milestone. So uh, share the podcast with a friend this week, please. Rate and review the podcast, as Douglas mentioned earlier. Twitter, at SkippyDougals. Listener mail, SkippyDougals at gmail.com. The Substack is amazing. It's also SkippyDougals. has all the articles we talk through every week, so that's a great follow for you. It will give you an uh, email each Monday when the show comes out with all the references if you want to dive into the materials we talk about. Really handy stuff. I'd recommend that strongly. Thanks, guys.